in your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 3. Or if you got your phone, you can swipe there, tap there, whatever means. It should be on the screen as well. Um, <clears throat> today we are we're continuing our series, our sermon series in the book of books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which um, in the Hebrew Bible are just one book. Um, so we're 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 going through that. And as a reminder of where we're at, um, many of the Jews who were uh, lived as captives in um, exiles in Babylon have returned to Jerusalem and to Judah. And uh, they're back in their homeland. Uh, God has, has granted a whole lot of favor to Israel through several Persian kings who are helping fund uh, uh, their worship life, the rebuilding of the temple, um, empowering key Jewish leaders like Ezra and Nehemiah to go back to God's people and to stir them to repentance and to obedience. Um, but Israel and its capital, Jerusalem, are still very far away from they're still far from the vision that God has uh, for his people and for the restoration and glory that God intends for this city. Uh, we learn in Nehemiah 1 that the wall of Jerusalem is broken and its gates are destroyed by fire. So there's still rubble heaps. There's the temples built, but there's no defenses at all. Uh, but there was a promise uh, made by God to his people through the prophet Jeremiah long ago, long, even before they went into captivity, um, that Jerusalem would be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate, according to Jeremiah 31. Um, the tower of Hananel and the corner gate, those are gates along the wall. So this is a picture of also the walls being rebuilt, the full glory of Jerusalem being restored. And so Nehemiah, aware of this promise, stirs the people, God's people, uh, uh, to, to, take, to take action. He's been commissioned by King Artaxerxes to come back to Judah. Uh, he's been funded uh, with a federal uh, grant to make this happen. And so he stirs the people to action to rebuild Jerusalem's walls. And that's where we pick up today in Nehemiah chapter 3. So we're going to consider the whole chapter today, but we're not going to read the whole chapter. It's a little lengthy. So we're going to read um, from verses 1 through the first part of verse 10. And then we'll just pray for God's help in the preaching of his words. So, Nehemiah chapter 3, starting in verse 1. This is God's grace, grace-filled word to us. Let's read. It says, Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachar, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezebel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Baana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Joida, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besadea, repaired the gate of Yeshena. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired uh, Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Moronathite, the men of Gibeon and Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. 
Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harheah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephaiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Judea, the son of Harumath, repaired opposite his house. Let's pray for God's help as we consider his word. Lord, you are good to us to give us your word, and every word written in this book um, is from you for our edification, for our learning, and to teach us about Christ. And Lord, I pray that that would be the effect this morning, even as we're reading about a wall being rebuilt by different people in different occupations. Lord, help us see a vision of who Jesus is and what he's building. And we ask for that in the name of Christ. Amen. Um, I really enjoy the sci-fi movie, The Martian. Um, I'm hoping a number of you have seen it. It's, it's good. I'm going to I'm going to ruin it a little bit for you if you haven't, um, <laughs> uh, because I'm going to talk about the plot. Um, in the movie The Martian, astronaut Mark Watney is accidentally stranded on the planet Mars, uh, presumed to be dead. Uh, there was a storm. They had to get out of there. He got hit by debris. They couldn't get contact. They think he's dead. And so um, when satellite imagery, however, shows, uh, to the contrary, shows evidence that he is still alive, uh, everybody rallies together. Uh, to, to keep him alive and to bring Watney home. You've got software engineers creating a software patch that enables Watney to communicate with Earth more easily. They modify, I think it's called the Pathfinder, which is this, this older piece of equipment still on Mars, and they, so they modify that so we can talk to them. You've got botanists and dietitians advising Watney on how his limited food supply can last as long as possible to keep him alive. NASA prepares to send a new space probe to Watney, uh, to, uh, uh, full of food to, to keep him alive, because the next mission isn't going to be for like another four years. And so uh, they, they send that space probe, but it explodes sh- shortly after liftoff. And when it explodes, the China National Space Administration, they jump in. They offer to use their rocket, which was otherwise a secret. It was something they were developing. They say, hey, hey, we actually have a rocket you guys can use. And so they offer that as a replacement. When Watney's fellow astronauts learn that he's still alive, they volunteer to extend their current space mission by several months, months longer than they're expecting, in order to rendezvous with Watney for a rescue mission. People across the globe, from various disciplines, rally for a single cause, to bring Watney home. And in our passage today, we see people rally together from various backgrounds, working side by side for a common goal. And their goal is to rebuild Jerusalem's walls. Israel rallies together to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. The place, Jerusalem is the place on earth where God has designated his name to dwell. It's the one geographic location on this entire globe that he said, that's where my presence is going to be known most fully. It's, it's, the, it's the capital of the, of the land of inheritance that God promises people way back, way back to, to Abraham before they went, the people went down into Egypt and they came back up, up as slaves, going back into the promised land. It's going to be so grand, right? Um, for those who know Veggie Tales, that song. <laughs> Love or Phil, I can't remember all the words. This is the, this is the homeland of God's people it's where the temple stood. It is the focal point 
of God's relationship with his people, Israel. And so they are rallying to rebuild the walls of this place. Now, that's good for them, but how does that apply to us? What, what are we called to build? We don't have a temple anymore. Well, under the, new, you know, under the new covenant of Christ that he ushered in, what is the equivalent of God's city now? They had a very physical uh, object that they could fixate on. It was, the, it was the city of God. It was Jerusalem. Well, now the kingdom of heaven is the city of God. It's the kingdom that's broken in among us now. Jesus said in Luke 17, 21, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Where God reigns, where he sits enthroned, ruling his subjects, it's in the midst of you. God's city is now the people of God. You and me, both gathered as the church and scattered as his ambassadors in the world. And as we worship God, as we grow in Christ, as we go and make disciples, we are furthering the kingdom of God. And so, like the Israelites who rallied together to rebuild Jerusalem's walls, we are called by God to rally to Christ our King, who advances His kingdom throughout the world. And so, God intends to speak to us today through this passage. As we read of Israel rebuilding Jerusalem, we're going to learn what God has in store for us as we seek to live faithfully to Him and advance His kingdom. And the way that we're going to do that is we're going to look at three aspects of how Israel rebuilt the wall. And we're going to see how each of these aspects uh, applies to our lives as Christians. So we're going to jump right in to the first aspect of Israel's rebuilding, and that is that Israel rebuilt with purpose. They rebuilt with purpose. It's where we have to start. We have to ask the question, why was Israel rebuilding Jerusalem's walls? Why was that such an important project? Well, the walls were there for protection. That's pretty obvious. Okay, so but we're reminded of, of the kind of protection, the kind of reinforcement here when we read in the text. We're reminded of this through multiple references of beams, gates, walls. These are defensive mechanisms. When, when describing the rebuilding of the gates, the gates are the access points to the city, right? The walls you can't even get through. The gates, this is where people are allowed to get through. So when we're describing these, we read four times in, this, in, our, in our chapter here that the builders set its doors its bolts, and its bars. Doors, bolts, bars, beams, gates, walls. These are built to protect the city from outside threats. It makes me think of the gates of Minas Tirith in The Lord of the Rings, right? They, they've got, for those who have that visual, or maybe if you read the book, good for you, I didn't. Um, there's these huge, huge beams that sink into like, I don't know if it's, they probably don't have precast concrete back then, but they, in stone, you know, they've, they're huge beams. They've got these massive, thick doors ready to stand against the armies of Mordor. That's the kind of defense that's going on here. These are walls, heavy, thick walls, strong, reinforced gates. They are ready to protect against outside forces. So they were for protection. Okay, what were they protecting themselves from, though? What was the threat? Well, they were protecting themselves, for sure, against invasion. Um, to be left without a wall back then uh, meant you were, you were essentially defenseless. Nowadays, it might be like not having anti- 
uh, like missile uh, defense systems, right? So, so in today's in today's battle, <laughs> uh, nuclear warfare is a thing, right? And so, if you didn't have anything to, to protect against that, you're you're open, right? You, there's no way to defend yourselves. Back then, if you didn't have a wall, I mean, you were you were you were there for the taking. People could with their armies much larger than Israel. There's very few people there. They're not a big crew. If they don't have any sort of defensive structure, they don't have anything, humanly speaking, to keep them safe. Um, uh, multiple times, uh, there, there was, uh, um, uh, in, the, in, in Israel's history, there's plenty of looting that happened to the temple, um, and so they're, they're defenseless here. But they're also open, by not having a wall, to mockery and derision. Remember, Israel had some neighbors who didn't want them there. Um, we've heard about Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah the Ammonite, we, we haven't heard the last of them. They're, they're paying the side of Israel. Um, they're Israel's neighbors. And, and, and when they learned that Nehemiah had come to help Israel, uh, back in chapter 2, it says this of them. This was their response when they heard someone's coming to, to, to Judah. It says, It displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. These foes of Israel, they constantly mocked and jeered at Israel. And broken walls only added fuel to their insults. Later, they, they, they mock Israel. Are they going to really rebuild that wall with, with broken rubble and burn ones at that? And they're like, yeah, yeah. Man, even if they, what they're building, if a fox jumps on that, it'll topple the whole thing down. Israel is the subject of mockery. They're the laughingstock of their neighbors. But that shouldn't be so. They are the people of God. This is God's name is on the line here. So they're not just in danger of being invaded, that's real, but they're also in danger of just being a laughingstock and for God's name to be dragged through the mud by those who said, what kind of God do you have? You don't even have walls. You've got burnt rubble heaps. So we see that Israel, they are protecting themselves against threats, but what inside the city was worth protecting? It's got to be something worth protecting after all, we learn later in, in Nehemiah 7 that the city wasn't very populous. It wasn't like there's was a whole lot of people in there. And we also learn that uh, even by Nehemiah 7, no houses had been fully rebuilt. So there weren't even like full-blown, fully, uh, fully fixed homes. Okay, so what were they protecting? Well, Israel rebuilt the walls with the purpose to protect both their homes and the worship life. First, they were built to protect their homes. Six times in this chapter, we read that various people built opposite or beside their houses. That's how it describes the location. Opposite this person's house, opposite that person's house. So what does that mean, though? Because we just, we just heard, right, that, that no houses had been rebuilt. Nehemiah 7, even. No houses still. So what does it mean to have a wall that's opposite your house if you don't have a house? Well, these little plots of land with whatever remaining ruins lie to help delineate where your, where your land stopped and where your neighbor's land began, these plots of lands were the very inheritances that Israel had received from God. Again, this was the promised land of Canaan that God had given to his people as part of his covenant. This was Israel's ancestral city. Um, verse 16 mentions the tombs of David. Uh, that reminds us that kings were buried here, that there was, there was history. This is where God had placed kings over his people, kings who were there to shepherd God's people, both, both uh, 
governmentally, but also spiritually. We read of, of in, in verse 25, the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. So there's still this, this remembrance of a boundary of where the king dwelt. His palace is here. This is where the king's palace is. Um, we also realize that not only were the kings here, this is the place of, of Israel's ancestors. Again, we have the tombs of David. Uh, Nehemiah, when speaking with Artaxerxes about visiting Jerusalem, the way that he describes the city, it's instructive. This is how he describes Jerusalem. He says, it's the place of my father's graves, which is not how I would ever describe a place. What, why is that significant? This is where they've been. They're, this is where they're supposed to be born, raised, died, buried. You're supposed to look at the tombstones and go, that's right. Remember our great, great, great grandfather, Hazabel or whoever? God was faithful to him. And, and he was given this land, and now it's been passed on to us. It's a, it's a history of God's covenant relationship with his people. And so Jerusalem is Israel's home. And they believed that even when it was a bunch of ruins. We have something to learn from Israel here. Um, it could have been easier for them to focus on their, their current living spaces. They had places where they were living. They weren't like fully, perfectly nice. They weren't as permanent as they'd like them to be. But it could have been easier for them to, to be focused on that rather than investing in their future home, saying, I know I've got a plot of land here in Jerusalem. It doesn't look like much. I'm not even living there. But you know what? It's important to protect that because that's my future home. This is where God would have me. We as Christians have future homes that Jesus himself prepares for us now. Jesus calls us in Matthew 16 to lay up to not lay up for ourselves treasures on earth, but to lay up treasures in heaven. In these, in these future homes that Jesus himself is preparing for us, nothing is going to corrode or break down, but rather we are going to enjoy our permanent dwelling forever. I think about where Becca and I live now. We, we have a more permanent dwelling than we did before, which is exciting. It's part of growing up. Um, and, and so we, we feel that we can do a few more things to get a little more settled, but we're not like ready to like rip out an interior wall because we think, okay, we're, if we're going to have a few more kids, you know, this is a little bit small. We'd like to go somewhere. We can you know, kind of have room for them. So we're not quite ready to make all those permanent changes. You know, we're, we're not as invested for thinking that we're going to be here for the long haul. It's not our retirement home. If, if you only think you're in a spot for a short time, you, you, you don't invest too much there, right? You, you're more concerned with the permanent state of things. Well, as Christians, we have a very permanent state coming. This life is very short. Um, it, it doesn't feel like it now, perhaps, but it will be gone. It's like a mist. Yeah, we learned about that in Ecclesiastes. The home that we have, we will be there for eternity. We can't even start to fathom that. We, we can't wrap our heads around how long eternity is. But if we did, we'd be investing in that home. Man, if I could, if I could add one more piece of furniture, we're laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven as we, as we seek to please God. We're not earning his favor. We have it through Christ. But as we, as we seek to please God, as we uh, want to make our Father, who already loves us, happy, and as we lay up, store up treasures, enjoying the promises of God, man, if you can have that, that permanent uh, seat in your home or whatever for eternity over, okay, yeah, you could, you could probably uh, make a few more bucks here on earth. Think about the return on investment there. 
That's where God wants to have our mind. Israel had that vision. They had a vision of a more permanent dwelling than where they were. We have even a bigger picture of that with the dwelling that God has for us. How do we do that practically? Well, there's a few ways we can do it. We can do it with our thought life. Uh, Colossians 3.2 says, to set your minds on things that are above, not on things on the earth. So instead of constantly pondering and thinking about your finances, which we are called to think about as Christians, we want to be good stewards, but rather than constantly thinking about it, mulling over, as I'm prone to do, this is my tendency, we can spend our mental energy meditating on the promises and goodness of God. Instead of fretting about tomorrow's to-do list, which it'll be there when we get there, we can seek to enjoy and glorify God in whatever we're doing right now. Whether that means we're working, just be at work. Enjoy that God has given you work, the ability to do it, the ability to make money. Uh, Whether you're raising kids, and they might be hard (laughs) to raise, but just enjoying that God has given you them and that you have a, a, a... a means of influencing these little ones for the sake of the kingdom. Or whether you're just recreating, you're outside enjoying God's creation, soak it in, worship him as your creator, live in the moment, and trust God with the future. Our home is in heaven. God would have us invest in that dwelling place, and we could start to do that now, even, even in our thought lives. So Israel rebuilt Jerusalem's walls to protect their homes but they also did so to protect their worship. Notice in verse 1, it says that the priests, after building the sheep gate, they consecrate it as far as the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of, the, of, of Hananel. To consecrate something means to set it apart, set it aside as, as sacred or as holy, devoted for a specific purpose. So why were walls consecrated? That seems weird. It's just a wall, right? How is it set aside for anything? It's just there to keep the bad guys out. Well, especially these walls. Like no, in, in, in no other part in this chapter does it describe walls or gates being consecrated. It's just this little stretch. So why these gates? Why these walls? Well, these gates were probably at the northern end of Jerusalem, um, where, the, where the temple was. The temple mount sat... The temple sent on the Temple Mount, which bordered the very northern gate, or the northern wall of Jerusalem. Um, The temple, as I mentioned earlier, had been um, looted several times uh, with the objects of worship being desecrated. And so these gates and walls directly protected the worship of Yahweh. They were the only line of defense only infrastructural line of defense between invaders and God's dwelling place that was holy and sacred. And so the priests rebuild this wall. As they rebuild it, they, they devote it to the protection of God's holy temple. So in that, we're reminded that they are, they, they, they're not just protecting their homes and their own livelihood. They're protecting their very ability to worship God as he intended. And beyond protecting the temple, the walls and the gates also serve, God, uh, also serve the people of God by protecting them from pagan influence. Um, it wasn't just invaders that these walls kept out. Later, after the walls and gates are, are, are fully complete, trade is happening. 
uh, with, with foreign nations, which is fine. They're coming in on the weekdays. They've got their wares to sell in Jerusalem. Uh, merchants would come in, right? They're making money. But these merchants were entering and trading on the Sabbath day. Um, a day that God had made very clear to Israel was a day set aside as holy to observe him, to not do work, to rest in him, not feeling you have to work every day of the week, to take a day off, to trust in him for his provision, to remember his goodness. And so they weren't supposed to be doing normal business of bringing in all these loads and doing the trading. We read of Nehemiah's response to this, right? So these traders coming in, we read of his response in Nehemiah 13, 19. It says this, As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded, this is Nehemiah, that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. So the gates of Jerusalem uh, built by Nehemiah were used to protect Jerusalem from transgressing the Sabbath, um, that they might depend upon and hope in God. Um, while a gateless city was in danger of attack from outsiders, it was also in danger of being influenced by those who would infiltrate and upset the very commands that God had given his people to rest. It was a temptation. They're coming in here. Yeah, well, hey, I just need to you know, grab some more groceries today. No, the Lord wants them to trust him for, for provision. And these people coming in, we're upsetting that. The potentially bigger threat, I think, to God's church today is not so much those who would try to just shut it down altogether. Think of that as the invading armies who just want to wipe out Jerusalem. That might not be our biggest threat. I think our biggest threat is those who would undermine the truth and the experience of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Doctrinal heresy, where the, where the truth of Christ's substitutionary atonement, like we sung about today, Christ alone is our confidence before God through faith in him. When that truth is undermined or, or placed second to some agenda, yeah, that's important, but what you really should be preaching is this agenda or this cause. Doctrinal heresy or, or cultural heresy, where the way that we, that we treat one another denies the grace of God who forgives sinners. When we, when we don't treat each other as those whom God has said, I declare you innocent, I declare you justified. When we hold wrongs against one another, that is a serious threat to the church. One that we must protect ourselves against. The Israelites rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem with the purpose of protecting their homes and their worship of Yahweh from both invasion and infiltration. So how do we do that today? Does it mean that we just cut ourselves off from the world? No influence whatsoever, cannot contact. Some people have kind of interpreted it that way, but the scriptures tell us otherwise. Now, Jesus himself, when praying to his father, uh, about his disciples says this. He prays this. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So what wall do we build? Not a wall between us and the world, but a, 
a wall between us and the evil one. Ephesians 6 reminds us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is spiritual warfare that we must be ready for, that we must be protecting ourselves from. Well, what does that look like? That seems rather abstract. Well, it means that we, uh, according to, I think it's 2 Corinthians, take every thought captive to obey Christ. That could be somebody else's thought. Wait, that doesn't obey Christ. That undermines his goodness, his mercy, his love, his justice, his holiness. That could be our own thoughts. Well, you might have your own opinions or your own priorities. Hold on, we take those captive. That's, that's military speak. That's a prisoner of war. That thought is going to be taken captives, locked up to serve Christ our King because it's in subordination to him right now, but it must subordinate to him. So we don't believe everything that we hear. We don't believe everything we think. We take every thought captive. It means that we, we train up our children in the fear of the Lord. We, and we must be wise about what influences they're interacting with, um, especially as kiddos. Kiddos are learning about the world that God has made from everyone around them. And so again, it's not that we just completely cut off everybody all the time from any influence. It's, it's, knowing, it's having that wisdom to know, okay, what age is my kid? Where's the maturity at? As I'm instructing them about the way of the Lord, let's think about what settings they're in, what's appropriate for their age as they get more and more used to being trained up. And now, now an ambassador, when now they're ready to be more sent out to be an influence in the world, we, we ask God for wisdom about that. It means also that we, at times, gently correct each other. When we're believing or acting in a way that is inconsistent with the gospel of Christ. So if someone in your discipleship group is, is maybe burdened with condemnation, this wouldn't really be correcting, but they just have this sense of guilt and they have to do things the right way, otherwise God isn't pleased and they can't sleep at night. You go, hold on, where's your confidence? Is it in what you're doing? Or is it in what Christ has already done? That's, that's sometimes a form of pride. That condemnation feels spiritual, feels haughty. You want to know God better, and I want to do everything to please him. But it's all about your performance instead of resting in and enjoying all that Christ has done. So we, we come alongside each other. We, we coach each other. We, we point. We, we walk together toward Christ. That's how we stand against our spiritual enemy. We have a spiritual enemy. He'd rather stay anonymous. Satan would much rather work in the shadows being totally forgotten about. But we have a spiritual enemy, and God calls us to be aware of him and defend against him. And our final home is not this earth. God has called us as those who are devoted to worshiping him. And so Israel rebuilt with the purpose of, of preserving and fortifying the worship of Yahweh, and we as Christians are called to do the same thing. But apart from building with purpose, we need that. We need the vision of why are we doing this? Why is this important? God, the creator, has made us and called us as his own. That's why. And he wants to have our, our full attention, our full devotion. 
But apart from building with purpose, we need more than that. Israel needed more than that. They also built with camaraderie. That's our second point. The second aspect of the way that they built was that Israel rebuilt with camaraderie. Note that the rebuilding of Jerusalem's wall is not a, a, a one person or even a one group uh, project. It, it, was, it, it involved everybody. Everybody had to pitch in. Remember, these are huge stones of burnt rubble. The, the walls were broken down. The gates are burned. Anything that could be burned, wood, you've got burnt wood. I mean, it's a mess. It was grueling, hard work. They didn't have bulldozers. Bulldozers. They didn't have any other construction equipment, which I know nothing about. And Will Huffaker could you know, go much more at length about what it takes to build a wall or clear a place of rubble. On the east side of the city, the, the, the wall was so badly destroyed uh, that when they rebuilt it, they didn't actually build it where it used to be. When you, when you trace out, you know, and people who have studied this far longer than I have <laughs> help with the, with the imagery here, when you trace out the actual path, because it says counterclockwise path, as you read, um, of the wall, they don't go over the historical wall. They, on the east side, they bring it in. Um, the, the slopes were really steep on that side. Remember, it, Jerusalem is built on this, on this mountaintop. Um, and so the slopes are, are so steep, the rubble is so bad that they say, you know what? This, this is actually where Nehemiah had to get off his, uh, his donkey or his camel when he was investigating the wall. It's over here on this east side. He's checking out. He can't even get through it on this beast of burden. And so he's like, you know, it's just, it's so, it's so shot. They say, you know what? We're just going to build it in. We're just going to go up the hill and build a new wall. That's how bad it was. It was bad. And so it's this massive project. And even when they finish um, what they've built at the end of this chapter, we learn in the next chapter that it's only half its height. All this effort, still half. It's a huge undertaking. And so how did Israel find motivation and endurance to actually uh, have the stamina to take on such a daunting task? Well, they needed that vision that we talked about to, to motivate them but then to carry them forward, the stamina, the grueling day in and day out work as you're breaking your back in the hot sun, this is what helped them. They, they worked as a family. Note verse 1 again. It says that Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. So they were working together as brothers, as, as part of the covenant family that God had created by blessing Abraham and Isaac and Jacob way back when with his promises for uh, descendants as, as numerous as the stars of heaven, which he made good on. We read in verse 12 that Shalom even worked alongside his daughters. I love that. Just imagine these girls are like, yeah, well, Shalom is even this ruler, actually. And his daughters could consider themselves something, maybe not quite princesses, they may not have that high, but yeah, our dad's a ruler. I could sit at home. I have it pretty good. Our income's pretty nice. Maybe they got to paint their nails and other people couldn't. I don't know. But, but no, they, they, they jumped in. The, 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 the daughter, like, no, we can work. We can move rubble. Let's go. This is, a, this is an entire family in, involved project. This reminds me of a phrase that my family um, used for, for years, and that term is the Santee team. We, we named everything as we grew up, um, which I was reminded of even of this morning. 
the CNT team, whether, and what that meant was it was this, it was this form of camaraderie. It meant we, we were in on things together. We, we weren't going to just, no one was going to drop out. We're going to help each other move forward. So whether it was cleaning the church building together or, or all helping out with the dishes together after church, we had a mentality on our, on our best days that, that we, we didn't always have it, but on our best days, we had this mentality that we were in this together. We're, we're, no, we're the CNT team. We don't just let other people's do, you know, we don't let other people just kind of leave them high and dry. No, we're, we're a part of this. Um, and maybe it was just to ensure that we all worked at the same time, but it was a good tactic. And, and I, not just tactic, it, it, it resembled that attitude that, um, that I'm very grateful for to have had. Um, that mentality, that team mentality is what Israel had here. They were a team working side by side together with a shared identity. We're in this together. You and I, we're blood. We are family. And here's the amazing truth. All who are in Christ are the family of God. The parallel today isn't necessarily nuclear biological families, though that's still an institution created by God as a good thing. The parallel now is the spiritual family of God. That's the people of God. Jesus made this clear in Matthew 12. He says that whoever does the will of his Father in heaven is his brother and his sister and his mother. That's who Jesus says, because that's even when people are calling to him, hey, your brother and sister are here, your, your family's here, and they're kind of frustrated that you're taking so much time with all these disciples who are crowding around you so much that they can't even get into the house. They have to tell someone, hey, we're here for Jesus. So he's our brother. What, what is he doing? We need to hang out with him. And he goes, who, who are my brothers and sisters and mothers? He's not, he's not being disrespectful to his family. He's saying that he's, he's showing an order of priority. He's saying, those who do the will of my father, they are my brother, my sister, my mother. And the New Testament regularly refers to Christians as fellow brothers and sisters. And Christ, because Christ has united himself to us through, the work, through his work on the cross, he has folded us in to the family of God. We are considered heirs with Christ. It says in Hebrews that he was not ashamed to call us his brothers. So here we are. We're, we're the very brother of Christ. And that means that we are brothers and sisters of one another. That's how we ought to see one another. We ought to see each other as the same family. We're headed to the same home. We have the same father, and Christ himself is our brother. And so we, we, we act as family. When I think about, when, you know, in a family, those are the ones you most, I think, by default can most naturally care for. Um, I, I think of uh, Laura's uh, good example of caring for her father who's, who's growing older and, and her faithful persistence in, in loving him and in, in sharing Christ with him. Her devotion to him is inspiring to me because she loves him as her father. Family is near and dear to our heart. And, and that is a picture of how God wants the church to look, for us to be caring that much about one another, that we really care when somebody's sick or when they're hurting or depressed, they're going through a hard time, or they just lost their job, or they're, they're in spiritual confusion, whatever the case may be. God wants us to treat each other as family because he's made us part of his family. But apart from just being family, the Israelites, 
they helped each other out with selfless camaraderie. Um, I love the example of Eliashib and Merimoth in this chapter. Uh, Eliashib is introduced in verse 1. We read, we, we've read about him before. Um, we read that he's the high priest, right? And so he, he was the one who rose up with his brothers, and they rebuild the sheep gate, and they consecrate it along with the other two northern gates uh, of Jerusalem. So as the high priest, he's got a very specific role, right? He's the high priest. There's only one of those. He's focused on rebuilding and consecrating the wall that bordered the Temple Mount. He devotes himself, uh, his time and his energy to this, to this work, this physical, spiritual, religious work of consecrating this wall. But because of this, he's unable to build near his own home. Um, whereas other Israelites were able to build opposite their homes, as we mentioned before, Eliashib was unable to do so because of his deep involvement with the work near the Temple Mount. We read about Eliashib's home in verse 21, but he's not the one who's working on it. He's not the one working on the wall next to it. So who does work on the wall next to Eliashib's home? Enter Merimoth. We actually encounter Merimoth, the son of Uriah, back in Ezra chapter 8. So last book. Uh, there he is entrusted with weighing the silver and the gold that Ezra bought, brought with him from Babylon uh, for the beautification of the temple. So this Merimoth, he is a priest, by the way. Um, he is a trustworthy man. He's, he's the one. Uh, they say, here's all this gold and silver. Putting you in charge of weighing that, there's a, there, he could have pocketed some of that if he was dishonest. They trust him with this. So he's a trustworthy guy. And we read about him in verse first in this chapter, in verse 4, actually. There he's rebuilding near the fish gate, which is probably in the northwestern part of the city. So he's already building one part, of the wall, or rather, uh, ne- yeah, next to the fish gate. But then in verse 21, he appears yet again. Uh, after somebody else repairs the wall up to the door of Eliashib the priest, so we're at the door of Eliashib the priest, we read in verse 21, after him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, so our guy, son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of Eliashib, where the last guy left off, to the end of the house of Eliashib. So that, that exact spot opposite Eliashib's house was built by Merimoth. And again, that's the second portion of the wall that he's tackled. So he's doing double duty. Merimoth is a trustworthy, resourceful, and hardworking dude. Uh, he's using his gifts and abilities to free up Eliashib to do, to do the work that's fitting for the high priest. He needed to be at the north doing the consecrating. And when I consider Merimoth, I think of our deacons. Um, they, here are trustworthy, resourceful, hardworking men using their many talents to serve the church and by so doing free up uh, the pastors to shepherd the flock of God. Uh, Danny's administrative wizardry, uh, Rick's capacity for getting things done, and, and David's ability to wrangle so many ministry teams all at once, they all greatly serve our church. And they enable uh, me and the other pastors to devote ourselves to the ministry of the word because we know someone else has got my house covered. I can focus on consecrating this part of the wall. So I, I'm grateful for you men uh, serving our church faithfully as deacons so Glad God gave his church deacons. (laughs) Uh, We are served well. Um, 
just as Elijah couldn't devote himself to consecrating the temple walls without Merimoth's hard work and support, we as elders cannot, uh, cannot pastor as freely as we do uh, without the amazing work of our deacons. And for that, we are deeply grateful. So thank you for your examples and your work. But this expression of camaraderie, it extends beyond the deacons. It extends beyond anyone holding an official title, pastor, deacon. These are priests. We've got plenty of non-priests working, right? So many people in this church, uh, ministry team leaders, volunteers, people serving in both formal ways and informal ways, uh, are the family of God at work, supporting one another and striving to grow alongside one another as we pursue Christ together. And church, I want to just commend you. I want to commend you for your involvement in each other's lives. Um, I see people sacrificially giving of their time, their energy, and their money to help out uh, a brother or a sister in need. Uh, I see people moving towards one another in compassion. When you can tell that someone's not having a good day, something's off, their face doesn't look as, as joyful as it normally does, and someone's moving toward them, listening to them, praying for them. I see that. I see people serving one another through various ministry teams in our church. There are lots of needs that we have, and you all have, have taken it up to go, I can pitch in. I can help out. I think of especially even children's ministry, which is a real sacrifice, especially I think of the nursery, where their little ones, they're not learning a whole lot right now other than just like the fact that you just love them, which is impactful, but it could feel small, and, and you're missing out on the sermon, and, and yet that is, that is serving uh, the parents of those little ones to be present, to be equipped, to be ready, to be sent back into their weeks. And so um, I just want you to know that God is at work among you. Uh, it's encouraging to watch. He is here with us. So I just want to simply leave you with a reminder that Paul gave the Thessalonian church, who is likewise already walking in faithfulness. They were already doing this. What does he say to them? He says, encourage one another and build one another up, and build one another up just as you are doing. Keep at it. Keep building one another up. Keep seeing to each other's needs. Keep praying for one another. I'm, I'm encouraged by uh, the Lord at work in this church. And so let's, let's continue to press on in that. God himself has made us a family, and we get to support each other and build alongside one another as we pursue the Lord and all the blessings that are found in him. So Israel had, what have we heard so far? Israel had this clear purpose in their rebuilding, right? They had vision. Um, they also had camaraderie. They had a vision of why they were rebuilding, and they had the support. They couldn't do this alone. We can't do this alone. God has not called us to do this alone. He has called us to do this as a people. And so they had the, the support of their fellow Israelites to continue in the work. But there's one more aspect that made their rebuilding efforts successful, and that is that Israel rebuilt without excuses. You might think that with such clear vision and, and strong support, people next to you rallying together saying, you're building this wall, I'm building that wall, I'll keep it up. Here, do you need some help? I'll help you lift that boulder. You'd think with all that, that maybe all of Israel would just be ready. Okay, let's go. Let's, let's hardly jump in. We have clear vision. We're in this together. Let's go. And yet, we read of one group who are not motivated to jump in still, despite all of this. In verse 5, we read that the, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop 
to serve their Lord. That is, these Tekoite nobles thought that this work was below them. They thought that they were above moving rubble heaps for God's cause. They thought they were better than that. And they failed to act in obedience to God. They made excuses and didn't jump into the work that God clearly had for them. This was pretty clear. They had Jeremiah 31 as a bank of like, the Lord has brought us back. He's going to rebuild. Nehemiah is the spiritual leader saying, let's do it. That's pretty clear. It wasn't like a huge question like, I don't know if we should do this or not. No, it was clear. And yet they made excuses. and They didn't jump in. But the rest of Israel had a different mindset. In fact, the subjects of these Tekoite nobles, uh, I like these guys, they're recorded as rebuilding two sections of Jerusalem's walls. They did the, <laughs> they did the work that their nobles wouldn't do. I mean, they, they, they really showed them up. The nobles think this is too low. The Tekoites are like, no, we're going to even do the work that you, that you should have been doing, right? Hopefully they didn't have pride about it, but they, they did the work that their nobles wanted, and in so doing, they, they ironically proved themselves to be more noble than those who were over them. The rest of Israel had a similar attitude. Check out the vocations of the workers mentioned here in this chapter. Verse 1 mentions priests. Verse 8 mentions goldsmiths and perfumers. Verse 32 mentions merchants. Note that none of those are masons, or lumberjacks, or construction managers, right? These aren't the wall-building types. Priests, they were used to dealing with animal sacrifices, as well as with, with studying and teaching the law. Think of them as a mix, it's kind of a weird mix, but a mix between uh, butchers and bookworms. Uh, that was their forte. They dealt a lot with animal sacrifices and with reading God's law and teaching it. Wall building wasn't really their forte. Goldsmiths, okay, they certainly work with their hands. So you think they have some skills that are transferable to wall building and gate building. True. But this still could have been outside their comfort zone. I mean, you're not working, when you're working with gold, I imagine you're not working with like copious amounts of it. Gold is expensive. They're probably making little, fine. I'm thinking of the, the, the finery of, of, of the temple. You know, you've got this, this lotus, this uh, um, little flower-shaped cup. You know, and they're, they're molding this gold. Gold is rather malleable, um, considering, uh, you know, compared to all the other metals. And so they're, they're, it's, a, it's a finer skill. And yet these guys are going, well, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to now work with steel, and I'm going to work with lumber, and I'm going to work with stone. It's new, but I'm going to go for it. It's outside their comfort zone. Perfumers and merchants, man, of all people that have an excuse to not jump in, I think these people might be the ones that say, yeah, that's not really my gig. I think of the people selling essential oils, perfumers, right? These are the people, right? They're investing their time and their energy and their effort and their knowledge on, on what concoctions work well and, and what things help your migraines or, or whatever the case may be, what smells good. That's what a perfumer does. Merchants, they're your retail people, right? They're, they're selling clothes, they're hawking goods. They're probably a little more like, probably a lot stronger than our current retail people because you had to move all your stuff and you didn't have like, you know, a car to move things for you. So, so they're a little stronger, but man, I imagine they were just intimidated by the prospect of constructing a wall whose purpose was for the military defense of Jerusalem. That's daunting, 
especially when you don't have skills that seem to lend themselves to that. And yet, all these people, priests, goldsmiths, perfumers, merchants, they jump in. Rather than making excuses for why they were unqualified or why the work didn't suit them, they got their hands dirty, they moved some rubble, and they built a wall. And aside from the temptation to make excuses on the, on the grounds of technical incompetence, uh, you know, aside from that temptation that they have, right? So they say, I, I'm not really good at it. You're, you're probably looking at the wrong person. Aside from that temptation, there was also the temptation to think of oneself as morally disqualified. And these are the walls of Jerusalem. Some of these walls are being consecrated. And if guilt is on your conscience, you might think, well, yeah, the, the Lord would, would have people who are, who are more righteous than me do that. I think someone who is probably tempted to think this way was Malchijah, the son of Haram. We read about Malchijah in verse 11. He helps build the tower of the ovens. But this Malchijah has been mentioned before. He shows up at the end of the book of Ezra, where there is a list of people who are guilty of intermarrying with foreign women who worshipped other gods. He's in that list. It says of the sons of Haram, one of them is Malchijah. He's a man who really blew it. I mean, really blew it. He fell into the very sin for which God had sent Israel into exile in the first place. He was woefully guilty. But this man was also repentant. As Pastor Mark pointed out so beautifully when he preached on that chapter, the list of these guilty parties at the end of the book of Ezra is also a list of those who repented from their sin, their grievous sin, and who then turned toward God. Malchijah is among them. He is aware of his sin. He's still dealing with the earthly consequences of that. They divorced their wives. Some of them had kids. I don't know if Malchijah did. That has got to be heart-wrenching, terrible, difficult. How do you make sure these people are cared for? What does this look like? It's a broken family. And, and, and because of his sin of not following the Lord's command to marry those who, who worship Yahweh and who reinforce their devotion to the Lord, rather than those who, like the wives of Solomon, stole his heart away from the Lord. This Malchijah now though aware of his guilt, though dealing with the consequences of his sin, is repentant, and he moves forward in obedience, doing the very work that God gave him to do, preserving and strengthening the identity of Israel as God's devoted people. Friends, this is an amazing lesson for us in the effect of grace. Forgiven of his sin, Malchijah presses on to do God's work. And believer, Christ's forgiveness frees us to obedience. It frees us from the guilt that would think, that would paralyze us and make us think that we are not good enough. We aren't good enough. That's right, Christ was. And because God sees us as righteous as his son, we are freed to take that next step even aware of our past you know, guilt and dealing with the consequences of it now, to take that next step to honor God. 
And God remembered Malchijah for doing that. He's written down here as one of those who, who didn't make an excuse to not work, but who, who said, you know what? I'm going to press on. Aware of the grace of my God who continues to do covenant with us, who hasn't forsaken us, I'm going to press on. Because Christ has absorbed our guilt and our condemnation on the cross. And because he secured our forgiveness and our favor with God, we are now mobilized to live for the kingdom of God. There is no guilt. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are we guilty? Yes. Are we unqualified? Yes. Can God still use us? Yes. That's the beauty of the gospel. God saves wretched and weak sinners and transforms us into instruments of righteousness. In Christ, God enables us to serve him despite our guilt and difficulties. As the Apostle Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 3, says not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as from coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. So then our, our confidence lies not in ourselves, but in God. So we can confidently seek to do, not perfectly, but faithfully, all that he's commanded to us. So we strive to preach the gospel to those around us, telling them about Jesus. Confident, how do we do that? We do it confident in a Savior who has all authority in heaven and on earth and who is with us by his Spirit. We, we battle our sin. We do the hard work. We press forward confident that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And we give generously and discreetly and sacrificially confident that our Father who sees in secret will reward us. Grace enables us to live an excuse-free, guilt-free life, just as it did with the people of Israel. Israel was faced with a daunting task to rebuild Jerusalem's walls, but they were motivated by a vision to worship God. They were helped by the support of their fellow comrades, and they cast aside every excuse that undermined the empowering grace of God. And so Israel rallied to do the work that God had set out for them to do. And as Christians, we too have a kingdom to advance that Christ said that he will build. He's the engineer. He's the architect. We are his subjects. We are his workers. And we find motivation to do this by considering the heavenly home that Christ has prepared for us. We receive help through the support of God's family. That's you and me. That's how we strengthen each other. And we cast aside every excuse as we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Empowered by God's grace, we will advance God's kingdom for the glory of Jesus Christ. But we'll only do so as we look to the Savior who makes us right with God and makes our feeble efforts bring him glory. And so we must remember that as we move forward. And we pray that, that God will keep that on our minds as we seek to move forward in faithfulness to him. So let's pray now. Lord, we are aware of your grace. Your grace has pardoned all our sins through Christ. And 
Because of that, Lord, we are freed. We are freed to live as beloved sons and daughters, brothers and sisters of Christ himself, the family that you have brought together, adopted as those you love. And so, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us for the work that you have us to do, that you would help us to to, captive, uh, to, to captivate every thought and, and bring it into subjection to Christ, that we would seek to advance your kingdom as we, as we talk to our neighbors and, and our coworkers and our friends who don't know you, Lord. And I pray that we, in, in all of this, we would do so uh, with, a, with a remembrance that you uh, have a, a shining face of love toward us because of what Christ has done. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Let's all stand. Mm-hmm.